Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. All right, welcome to another episode of the Hernia series on Behind the Knife. Um, It's an exciting time to talk about some complex scenarios for a simple problem known as umbilical hernias. Uh, so clearly that was just some sarcasm, but we're going to talk about complex patients dealing with umbilical hernias and how to manage them. Today, I'm joined by my partner, Sean Orenstein, and one of our residents at OHSU, Shiroz Roman, and we're going to talk all about umbilical hernia. Let's get rolling now. So many of us think about umbilical hernias as a simple problem, but for abdominal wall surgeons, Oftentimes, when you talk to patients who present with complex abdominal wall defects and loss of domain, if you really talk to them, you may hear that the index operation that happened on their abdominal wall was actually an umbilical hernia repair. So our goal oftentimes is to avoid long-term complications or hernia recurrences. So we'll talk about some patients who are prone to recurrence and complications. So Shiroz, whenever you're thinking about a patient and you're trying to, you know, have your best possible outcome, what are some of the factors that go into decision-making? Uh, the main factors are finding and identifying the right patient, performing the correct operation, and doing that operation at the right time in order to achieve the best possible outcome for that patient. Exactly. Unfortunately, that, that equation that you described in reality is often imperfect. And many of those factors are either suboptimized or can't be optimized in advance of an operation. So today what we're going to do is some define objective measures of risk for patients who present with ventral hernias or umbilical hernias. We're going to summarize data on management of high-risk scenarios in umbilical hernia. And then we'll review some strategies to mitigate risk and improve outcomes. So let's get started. Uh, Let's talk about how we assess risk. So Dr. Orenstein, when you're thinking about grading patient risk factors for ventral hernias or umbilical hernias, what are some of the things you think about? Well, there's a lot of factors that go into uh, evaluating for somebody for a hernia repair. yeah, part of it is the description of the hernia itself. Is it large size? Is it recurrent? Uh, is there other mesh in place? Do they have a history of infection or are they high risk for infection? Is there bowel involvement? And then another big thing is what are their comorbidities uh, that, uh, that can affect the outcomes of that case or at least their perioperative morbidity? Um, so, uh, you know, just like before, it's not a simple equation. There's a lot of factors that go into decision making and these all, it's all about risk reduction when we're talking about how we proceed forward when planning out a, a ventral hernia repair. Awesome. So the, the things that you just reviewed, established by the Ventral Hernia Working Group, also sort of validated with the teams out of Cleveland, uh, Cantors at all, um, a lot of it's related to ventral hernia. So here's my question to you. Is that data applicable to even an umbilical hernia? A primary umbilical. Yeah, so no, it's it's interesting question. Uh, some of that data I don't think can be directly applied to it, but I, I think it can be also interpreted in such a way as you led the talk with, in that a lot of these smaller or mid-sized primary umbilical hernia hernias 
that's how those these things start off. And then multiple operations later, we're doing a big abdominal wall reconstruction. So I do think those factors do play into even primary umbilical hernia repair. We want to do it right the first time. So that means getting optimization from the very beginning, even if it is a small, relatively uncomplicated umbilical hernia right from the beginning. Awesome. We talk a lot about optimization and you alluded to it just now. So we think about like the big three, the obesity, smoking cessation, diabetes control. Um, do you think optimization is something that needs to be done in the setting of a primary hernia repair? I do. For all these things, we, we want to avoid this uh, vicious cycle. Uh, this, this cycle where somebody gets a hernia repair, uh, there, there's some complication, infection, dehiscence or otherwise that leads to readmission, uh, perhaps another surgical procedure, mesh removal. Now that hernia is bigger, more complex, they get another hernia repair, another complication and, and an ongoing this cycle and cycle of, 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 of poor outcomes that ultimately leads to some of these big disastrous hernias. So I do believe that optimization is necessary even for uh, some of these smaller primary hernias to avoid this vicious cycle from starting in the first place. Great. So whenever thinking about umbilical hernias, there are guidelines to guide decision-making established by the European Hernia Society and the American Hernia Society. These will be included in the show notes. It's by Henriksen et al. from 2020, a great resource summarizing thousands of publications on uh, umbilical hernia and giving you some thoughts about what we know and more importantly, what we still don't really know. So a lot of great things on that particular document. So let's start with assessing risk. Uh, Shiroz, when you're looking at a patient, what are some of the anatomic considerations you think about when evaluating a primary umbilical hernia? Uh, some of these are things that Dr. Orenstein has touched on already, but uh, the first is a size. So is it a small defect uh, that's under a centimeter? Is it a larger defect above four centimeters? Or is it a medium-sized defect with size in between those two? Great. And then, so most of the time we're getting, uh, you know, seeing these patients in clinic, it's a primary umbilical. Uh, you assess it and you're able to get a sense of the hernia you know, size, and you're usually not going to obtain imaging. But when do you think about getting imaging, um, Chiros? There are a couple different uh, scenarios. The first is if the diagnosis is in doubt. Uh, for example, if it's a patient with morbid obesity where you can't exactly feel the defect, that might be a time when you sh uh, should consider getting imaging. If they've had prior abdominal operations, and the goal of that is uh, to assess and look for occult hernias that you otherwise would not uh, have known about. Third is if they have uh, a diastasis and you want to assess for that diastasis, that's important information to know before you operate on that patient because it will impact the decision-making for the operation that you ultimately perform for fixing that hernia. And fourth is uh, cirrhotic patients. You want to identify and see if they have recanalized umbilical vessels, uh, as that would change the complexity of the operation that you would perform. And, and along with the imaging for that, there's, you know, there's different imaging modalities. Uh, a lot of times patients will come with uh, ultrasounds for smaller hernias, 
I would say ultrasound for the most part is inadequate for, for good anatomic assessment of the abdominal wall. So most of these patients, when, when imaging is necessary for some of these select scenarios that Shroes just pointed out, CAT scan is really going to be the radiologic uh, exam of choice for these patients. Great. Imaging can also supplement your physical exam. Uh, we'll, we'll include this in the show notes, but there's this concept of the hernia neck ratio. Uh, a lot of patients come to our clinics and have been told by other providers that watchful waiting is totally safe for a asymptomatic hernia. However, some hernias are a little more dangerous than others. So comparing your the diameter of your hernia sac to your hernia neck, if that ratio is greater than two and a half, those patients are going to be at high risk for developing hernia complications, in particular if there's bowel involved in that hernia. So think about the anatomy, look at the sort of hernia morphology, and that may guide decision-making, even in asymptomatic patients. So let's talk about some common high-risk patient populations. So Dr. Orenstein, you're in clinic, you're reviewing your clinic schedule and, and seeing who's coming in. What are some common scenarios that present either to your clinic or you get consulted on that you consider high-risk populations, populations that are at risk for recurrence or, or complications in trial or perio? Well, several categories of patients. Uh, first and foremost, there's advanced liver disease with cirrhosis. Uh, these are not only complex, have complex physiology, which can be uh, challenging from either from a surgical anesthesia perspective, but they could have ascites. Um, you know, do they have other intra-abdominal pathology that needs to be evaluated and treated? Uh, we see a lot of morbid obesity patients as well. And um, uh, there's different levels of fat distribution and anatomy that can, that, that might need to be determined preoperatively to help plan out that repair. Um, women of childbearing age is another interesting category of patients that were, you know, there's not great robust data on it, but there is some early data showing to help guide us as to when to repair these patients or when to hold off. A lot of that is a lot of counseling with the patient to determine what are their pregnancy plans to help plan out that repair. Um, you know, it, you know, if there's an, a need for urgent or emergent hernia repair, um, whether this is in clinic or the patient that comes into the emergency room, yeah, the, the sort of the, the, the algorithm of treating those patients can be vastly different if that's done in an elective setting. And then as it was touched on earlier, uh, diastasis, there's a debate in the hernia world as to if somebody, a patient has a primary umbilical or epigastric hernia, uh, or even a, a ventral incisional hernia, as well as diastasis, do you have to fix everything, including the diastasis, or do you focus just on the hernia or hernias themselves? Uh, it's not quite straightforward as to the answer. I think each of us has our own philosophy on, on how to repair those and manage uh, all those problems either separately or all at once. Great. So let's, let's start talking about some of these high-risk populations. Let's start with cirrhosis. So when you think about cirrhosis, when all of us think about cirrhosis, we worry not necessarily about the hernia recurrence as much as the morbidity and mortality associated with operating on a patient with advanced liver disease. And it's not just the hernia surgeon. It's not just the general surgeon. This, this is actually true for even hepatobiliary specialists who regularly manage and take care of patients with cirrhosis. In 2019, a survey was done of hepatobiliary specialists asking what they believe the morbidity and mortality 
of operating on an umbilical hernia in a patient with cirrhosis was. And, and the bottom line was that the perceptions among these surgeons for morbidity and mortality was that it was very high. Even for child's class A and B cirrhotics, we were talking about morbidity of between 14 and 30% and mortality between 4 and 13% for child's A and B. And of course, with child's class C, the perceptions among hepatobiliary specialists was that morbidity was as high as 50% and mortality as high as 30. So that those were the perceptions. Now, Shiroz, based on the review of literature, what is the actual data show, at least in retrospective review of data for morbidity and mortality in child's class A and B? So the data shows that there's actually a big difference between the perception that you mentioned and the actual uh, morbidity and mortality. When you group uh, child class A and B, the morbidity is 16% um, and 67% for uh, class C. The mortality in child score A and B is 0% and mortality in class C is 4%. Now, one of the important things to recognize about these numbers is that clearly many people operating and taking care of patients with cirrhosis and an umbilical hernia are doing a lot of work, right? The anesthesiology team, the perioperative team, the surgeon coordinating a lot of care. It means that you probably have to think a lot more about these operations than you do like a standard umbilical hernia in a very young, healthy patient. But the bottom line is if you do that, you can have good outcomes, outcomes that aren't very different, at least in low, uh, lower class uh, cirrhotics relative to the standard uh, you know, non-cirrhotic patient. So a lot of thought process or thinking about these patients can lead to good outcomes. Uh, Dr. Ornstein, what are your thoughts? Yeah, it was the same. It's interesting. I, I kind of had that same thought process you know, before looking at the data and that, oh gosh, you know, cirrhotics, high, high risk, delay, delay surgery until they're all perfectly optimized. But the reality is these are challenging patients. They will never, ever get perfectly optimized. You can optimize uh, smokers, diabetics, uh, obese patients to some degree. Uh, Cirrhosis is a a hard entity to treat. So the bottom line is, especially with good data supporting us, um, these patients, many of them do need to proceed with, with repair. That doesn't mean that there isn't the need for certain levels of optimization uh, ameliorating the the the, uh, the ascites, whether it be with diuretics or tips, uh, so some of that stuff really should be done prior to elective repair. But the reality is that we can proceed with with fixing these hernias. Awesome, and and there's some really nice emerging data talking about fix it when you can, and looking at the role of umbilical hernia repair in cirrhotic patients, and in the emergency setting. Umbilical hernia is actually a predictor, an independent risk factor for mortality. If you're able to convert this from an emergency procedure to an elective repair, that's associated with a 64% risk reduction in mortality. So definitely some good data supporting taking care of these patients and their symptomatic hernias. So let's move on to that. The second category that Dr. Ornstein talks about, morbid obesity. So Shiroz, Obesity, what are, what's, what do we know about obesity? How does it impact uh, operations? Uh, so our common perceptions regarding obesity 
are that it's associated with an increased rate in surgical site infections, increased rate in hernia recurrences, uh, as well as pulmonary complications, venous thromboses, uh, higher readmission risks. Uh, There's a perception that these patients will do worse uh, with uh, anesthesia and just generally have worse outcomes in the general population. Um, And finally, there's a perception that a minimally invasive approach uh, is, you know, quote unquote, better, or it's associated with um, fewer wound complication rates. All right. Yeah. I mean, I think it's not just perceptions. There's a lot of data guiding these perceptions. There's uh, there's a lot of data demonstrating that there are more complications in patients with uh, sort of extreme weight. Now, there's going to be a lot of listeners who may not offer minimally invasive approaches to umbilical hernia repair. And they may be wondering, is that a bad thing? Should I be referring these patients to a specialist for MIS repair? Or can they proceed with uh, open repair? Are they going to have higher rates of complications? And here's what some of the data shows. So the Abdominal Core Health Quality Collaborative, which is made up of over 200 surgeons who focus on hernia repair, looked at wound morbidity and recurrence for patients with a BMI greater than 30 and found that essentially wound morbidity and recurrence rates were were not statistically significant in terms of differences with both groups having about the same outcomes. Does it mean that one approach is favored over another? I think it depends on the surgeon and what your clinical skill set is. You definitely can approach these with an MIS approach if you're comfortable with it. But if if it's a straightforward hernia or a smaller defect and you feel like you can do a good open repair, I I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Dr. Ornstein, what are your thoughts on some of this data and the way to think about patients who present who have obesity? Well, I mean, it's interesting data. I'm a little skeptical on 30-day outcomes data for wound morbidity, especially when it comes to hernia repair. We need at least 90 days. Uh, In fact, CDC tracks uh, SSIs for 90 days when it comes to mesh implants, at least for deep and organ space. Superficial is always 30 days for for all comers. So uh, I think we need to track this out a little bit longer from a wound morbidity standpoint. And Data has shown over many, many years that um, obesity is a risk factor for wound morbidity, dehiscence, infection, et cetera. And so uh, there, there's lots of also data that demonstrates the benefits of minimally invasive approaches for a wide variety of surgeries, not just hernia repair. So there certainly are benefits to MIS uh, over open, but it is interesting to see that, uh, as you point out, uh, you know, a surgeon can give a good operation, be it MIS or open. So both are options on the table. Um, and the one thing I'll, that we always have to think about is any MIS operation is at risk for conversion to an open operation. So we need to prepare that patient for that possibility, even uh, in well-qualified uh, minimally invasive surgeons. Wonderful. So let's say you're working with your partners or your bariatric surgeon and you have a patient who has a hernia and is undergoing a bariatric procedure. How would you recommend that they manage the hernia at the time of the operation, Dr. Ornstein? For these, you know, as we talked about in our previous Behind the Knife, it's all about pre-op optimization for patients with obesity, smoking, diabetes, et cetera. So if, if somebody has a hernia and they are still obese and they're there for their index bariatric operation, that is not the time 
to, to burn bridges and use various tissue planes that we're going to need at some point later. So if there's going to be a concomitant operation for a hernia repair and a bariatric, bariatric operation, bariatric operation is the primary goal there. Uh, but that doesn't mean we can't address those hernias at that time. And that could be either primary suture repair or some form of bridge repair. All we're trying to do is protect the bowels, uh, temporize those hernias, uh, help with some of that patient's symptoms, let them lose their weight following their bariatric operation, and then come back to fight another day with a more definitive hernia repair later down the road. Great. And, and in general, you should address these hernias, in particular hernias that you reduce in the operating room or lice adhesions. These can be associated with acute incarcerations, which can have distal obstruction and have complications with your various anastomoses or staple lines. So definitely should be addressed. Um, and whenever addressing them, just recognize that the complication burden for that operation is going to go up. Composite adverse events, 30-day readmissions and reoperations will go slightly up. Uh, and, and your team has to be prepared to manage those things. And the other interesting thing is that depending on what is uh, incarcerated into those defects, as those patients lose weight, some of the fatty deposition they lose is that visceral fat. And so while that visceral fat starts to shrink away over weeks and months, um, that uh, can lead to uh, different changing uh, changes in what can happen within that hernia sac. That is, uh, bowel and viscera can slide in and out, and, and, and basically symptoms and outcomes can change. So as you suggest, uh, uh, these should be addressed at the time of that operation, especially uh, if there's bowel involvement. But just expect that, that those hernia sac contents will change over uh, the months post-op. Great. All right, next group of patients. So patients who uh, desire future pregnancy or women of childbearing age. Shiroz, what are some common questions that may arise when seeing patients, uh, you know, women of, uh, who desire future pregnancy or, or childbearing age? Some of the questions are, one, should the hernia actually be repaired? Uh, what technique should be used? Will the repair actually stay intact? If mesh is used, what are, what's the consequence of using mesh? And uh, is it dangerous to even observe the hernia during their pregnancy? Great. Uh, so, so Dr. Orenstein, uh, when you're seeing these patients in clinic, what are some of the things you're informing them about? And what are some of the data that drives your personal decision-making? Well, first and foremost, when uh, with any intra increased intra-abdominal pressure, whether it be obesity or a baby that's growing over many months, that's going to increase, that's going to exert a force, a tensile force in the abdominal wall that will stretch a defect. So um, hernias can enlarge over that time, uh, as well as if there is a repair, uh, there can be up to a, a twofold increase in a hernia recurrence if that hernia is fixed uh, prior to a pregnancy. Uh, there's also ramifications of mesh placement, especially with fixation. Uh, if a permanent mesh is placed um, with plus or minus some fixation, sutures tax, as that abdominal wall stretches out, especially in the later stages of pregnancy, that can uh, cause some significant painful symptoms uh, for, for, the, for the patient. And so when I see patients uh, in this category, uh, my first question is, uh, A, do you plan on becoming pregnant? Uh, are you you know, what's the feasibility or possibility of that? Uh, and then also how symptomatic are they from their hernias? And also, is there any concern for bowel? So 
I think regardless of their pregnancy status or their future plans, if there's, if there's a hernia with bowel involvement, that's something that should be addressed, whether that be with primary suture repair or some bridging repair or resorbable mesh to get them through this until they're, they've completed their pregnancies. This is all part of the discussion with patients. If it's possible, I like to counsel patients, let's see if we can hold off on repairing this until you're done having uh, children, just to give them the best outcomes as well as reduced painful and other symptoms during pregnancy. That said, there are uh, patients that are very symptomatic or have bowel concerns, and those do need to be addressed to some degree. Great. And we're going to talk about all of these case types and go through some scenarios uh, in, in a little bit here. So we'll provide some thoughts about approaches. All right, so let's move on to emergency hernia surgery. So emergency hernia surgery is unique in that the objectives of the operations actually change a little. First and foremost, we have to remind ourselves, we're in the operating room to assess and preserve bowel viability oftentimes and make sure that if the patient's dealing with a scenario of sepsis, or strangulation that we address that. A secondary goal is to provide a safe, not necessarily the most durable, but a safe hernia repair. And then three, always remember to maintain options for future more definitive hernia repair. So whenever thinking about this uh, emergency setting uh, and operations, what do we know about the use of mesh? So Dr. Ornstein, when you're, when you're dealing with an emergency situation, you go to the operating room, when do you feel it's safe to use mesh? When do you feel like mesh should be avoided? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, when, you, when you're talking about mesh in the emergency situation, it really depends on the type of mesh you're using and what is the necessary repair. As you point out, uh, there's challenges with hernias done urgently or emergently. Also, many of these patients are not optimized. So just like uh, with patients that are uh, obese and haven't lost weight or active smokers, and some of these patients emergently are, um, you, you, you go in there, you save the patient's life, you save their bowel, and then secondary goal is what to do with that hernia. And so, um, so for these patients... Uh, if you cannot close them primarily, they will likely need some form of mesh, but that does not mean you have to use a permanent mesh. And it also means you don't, you don't necessarily have to burn any bridges and utilizing tissue planes that you're going to want to use for a more definitive repair. So to answer your question about is mesh safe? Well, yes, mesh is safe, but it's, it's not just that simple of that answer. It depends on the type of mesh that, that you're going to use and which tissue plane you're going to use. Typically in the emergent setting, uh, more inclined to close them primarily or bridge that uh, defect with a bioresorbable mesh or a biologic mesh um, to help pro protect the viscera, prevent evisceration, uh, dehiscence, uh, get good skin and, get skin and soft tissue coverage, at least best I can, depending on the level of, of contamination. Um, and then just like before, uh, come back to fight another day for a definitive repair. Great. There's been an emergence of retromuscular approaches to hernia repair. Uh, I mean, the technique's been around for a while, but I think much more enthusiasm about utilization. Uh, so what are your thoughts about an emergency retromuscular repair, retrorectus or a posterior component separation tar? What are your thoughts on that, Dr. Weinstein? That's a quick no. <laughs> That's a quick, please, please do not. 
the, you know, the retrorectus, retromuscular planes, those are the golden planes that we love to use for definitive hernia repairs that should not be done in the emergency setting. You know, we've been touting this for many, many years, and it's great to see that there's data out there uh, supporting this. Uh, this, you know, this nice study uh, in the Scandinavian Journal of Surgery from last year uh, showing that um, when doing uh, emergent uh, component separations, uh, can lead to a tenfold increase in complications. Uh, so, um, and, and that, that's just one sec- section of this paper. There's, it's also other repair types. It talks about uh, with, with, with increased uh, morbidity and complications and recurrence with this. So again, it, it, it basically, it, it, it's back to the same paradigm of treating the patient, treating their bowels and other viscera and uh, not burning any bridges, save these planes for a later time. Absolutely. That paper that you highlight will be included in the show notes. And it's one that I oftentimes reference now in terms of guiding people in the emergent and urgent setting. So determining the best operation, we've talked about the rationale for fixing hernias in these high-risk populations. Dr. Ornstein, you go to a lot of hernia conferences. If someone was to ask, how do you manage a four, a three to four centimeter umbilical hernia? What kind of answers do you expect to hear from the audience? Yeah, no, there's only, there's only one way to fix an umbilical hernia. So it makes it really easy. No, I'm just kidding. That's the funniest thing about it. And I love that when this question comes up at, at various hernia conferences with hernia experts, you could ask 10 hernia surgeons about this this small to medium-sized hernia, and you'll get 10 different answers on how to fix it. And that tells you there is no one best way to fix an umbilical hernia. There's a lot of ways. Many of them are good ways. A lot of it is on the comfort level of that surgeon, which tissue plane, open, MIS, uh, different mesh types. So there's a lot of options on how to fix these. And uh, the bottom line is though, you need to be facile with multiple techniques because you need to have a plan, you need to have a backup plan, you need to have a backup plan for the backup plan because invariably some of these, you'll find that perhaps tissue planes were used for other procedures uh, and you need to, need to go to, to your backup. So it, it is an interesting paradigm of, of many choices for, the, for umbilical and epigastric hernias. Absolutely, and a ton of ways to fix what seemingly looks like the same problem, I think it highlights, you know, some of coordinating the technique with the patient and the perioperative factors. So a lot of data, but there's a lot of philosophy associated with hernia right now. So tons of opportunities for research and iterative improvement. Um, So today we've talked about umbilical hernias. Clearly, they're not always simple. I think simple solutions to complex problems will simply fail. And complex solutions to what would seemingly be a simple problem will fail poorly. So let's go through some common scenarios and ask just general thoughts on how you approach these. Now, these are not 100% the only way to do it. These are the way that maybe myself or Dr. Ornstein think about uh, taking care of these patients. But uh, you really have to pair the decision-making to your skill set and your clinical practice and and, uh, your clinical setting. So let's say you're dealing with a a relatively low risk patient, doesn't have obesity, doesn't desire future pregnancy, and has a small umbilical defect, 1.5 or one centimeter defect presents, but it's very symptomatic, preperitoneal fat that's stuck in there and very symptomatic. Dr. Ornstein, how are you going to fix it? 
these are almost always a primary suture pair for me. I love a good open umbilical hernia pair, uh, primary suture pair. Uh, you know, I'm a minimally invasive trained surgeon, so I do do a lot of MIS, but you know what? For small, relatively uh, uncomplicated umbilicals, I think a nice little open cut down is a great way to fix a small to medium-sized umbilical defects, especially by doing these uh, MIS, you're making three ports, sometimes larger than the hernia itself. So I go open primary suture repair for these. Got it. Um, what about a, a larger defect, a four-centimeter uh, umbilical hernia? How are you thinking about approaching that kind of a defect? Primary umbilical hernia, no other abdominal wall problems. Yeah, so when we start to approach uh, this range, these are telling me these need mesh of some form of some tissue plane. So for these, these I do uh, change my thinking. Instead of doing an open repair, I'll go MIS. Uh, I'll, I'll try to do a tap, a preperitoneal approach. Uh, but if for some reason that preperitoneal uh, plane cannot be developed, uh, maybe the, the peritoneum or transversalis fascia is extremely thin or attenuated, then if I can't achieve a good preperitoneal plane, then I will do an IPUM and, and do an underlay uh, for these repairs. Are there any times for uh, larger, let's say four to six centimeter primary defects that you'll consider retromuscular approaches? Yeah, it, it depends on the anatomy. How are the rectus looking? Are they narrow? Are they wide? Uh, are there other abdominal wall uh, issues? Um, you know, you know if, if they're perhaps overweight, obese, not necessarily morbidly obese, but, obese, but somewhat obese. Um, they have a diastasis as well. You know, even approaching that four to five, four to six centimeter, this is still something that can be done with a tap or perhaps an IPUM repair. But once we start hitting a little bit larger than that, then I will go for a retromuscular pair, whether that be an open retromuscular pair or a minimally invasive such as knee tep or, or you know, or transabdominal uh, retromuscular repair. Great. And then in between, uh, clearly there's a lot of options. Um, so really it's about thinking about the patient and optimizing your outcome. So let's go on to these higher risk populations. Um, general recommendations. So a patient with child's class A and B presenting in the elective setting. Um, how are you managing this? It's a symptomatic umbilical hernia. How, how would you proceed with management for this, Dr. Ornstein? Well, first things first, if they have uh, uh, ascites and a large volume of ascites, this has to be taken care of before it. So as far as optimization for cirrhotics, they'll send them back to hepatology, uh, have their diuretics managed, perhaps have them get a TIPS if, if diuretics are insufficient. Um, we don't want, because, uh, there's also a risk of SBP with ascites and also that ascites will put, uh, it'll exert a stretch and a force on the abdominal wall. So we really want to take care of that, but let's say we get them optimized. Our ascites is minimal to nil at this point. Uh, if it's small enough, then a primary suture repair might be adequate. And a lot of these people do have a tiny little hernia defect, uh, but a very large hernia sac because that fluid, that ascites has stretched that hernia sac out. So these could be a simple uh, primary repair. If it's anything larger than a small hernia defect, uh, it might need a mesh reinforcement. I want to avoid mesh inside the abdominal cavity because of that risk of ascites and SBP and an infected intraperitoneal mesh. Then, um, then I'm, I, for this, a preperitoneal approach is okay. But for a lot of these, I actually like a nice onlay mesh where it's a little cut down. Many of these people have um, ischemic periumbilical skin. I want to want to excise that regardless. So for that, I'll just do an open uh, repair, excise all that um, poor quality skin and soft tissue, 
close the defect primarily on lay mesh. And this can be either a, a macroporous lightweight polypropylene or perhaps a bioresorbable mesh as an onlay, uh, leave a drain, uh, and then close the skin up and, and give them a good coverage at that point. So that would be my go-to for small to medium-sized hernias for these. Great. And, and you mentioned preperitoneal. Uh, my personal thoughts are that with especially like medium-sized defects, it's difficult to actually see what's happening underneath the surface of the abdominal wall. These patients oftentimes will have recanalized vessels, as Shiroz mentioned earlier. So CT imaging can help guide decision-making. If I am going to approach preperitoneal uh, and the patient would tolerate uh, general anesthesia, I will consider a minimally invasive approach with a preperitoneal dissection so that if there is any issues with bleeding, I have direct visualization of the vessels and I can gain control better than an open approach. Uh, just some thoughts. Um, I think for class C cirrhosis, it's a completely different ballgame. Medical optimization, if they're very symptomatic or have a high risk for medical optimization as much as possible and, you know, live to fight another day, primary repair if at all possible. If you're using mesh, mesh onlay, definitely keep mesh out of the peritoneal cavity. And then second line approaches, if these patients are on the transplant list, working towards a goal of uh, getting them to that transplant and fixing the hernia at the time of transplant, they'll actually do better uh, than uh, maybe trying to do two operations. All right, so let's talk about obesity. So patients who present with morbid obesity, obviously various classes. Let's talk about BMI less than 40. So between 30 and 40, what are your first line approaches to management of these patients at Lawrenceton? So my first line approach uh, is to send these patients to bariatrics if they can't achieve medical weight loss through diet and exercise or other medical means. Uh, but that said, there are certainly patients that, um, whether they have uh, that hernia neck to defect ratio with a large hernia sac or bowel out in there that we just don't have the luxury of, of waiting for uh, significant weight loss. So for these, um, I, in general, I want to avoid an open operation to avoid uh, the morbidity of, of, of an incision, uh, a large incision. So these are a minimally invasive approach. Uh, try to do these in a preperitoneal approach as a tap, or if, if can't achieve a good preperitoneal plane, then an eye pump with an underlay is a good uh, technique for these with wide overlap and uh, also with defect closure, of course, for all of these. So that would be for um, basically for the, the vast majority of these patients if they cannot uh, be optimized. Great. And, and we talk a lot about BMI um, and, and many people highlight BMI goals of 35. Uh, I think that at, there's no absolute cutoff. It's just that risk does seem to rise when you go to higher BMIs. It's a lot about trajectory. So for patients who present with, say, a BMI of 42 and have gone down to 35, 37, 38, that trajectory is actually very good. And it can actually result in good compliance of the abdominal wall and can allow for effective hernia repair. And their physiologic status clearly has improved since you first met them. So trajectory is almost as important, if not more important than, than the absolute number. Now, now, what about patients with like BMIs much greater than 40? You're talking of 45, 50, 55. Um, what are you trying to do for these patients when you see them with a symptomatic umbilical hernia? 
Well, similar uh, paradigm for me, but uh, you even need to be more aggressive. So while I talked about bariatrics and that other category will be in my lesson 40, a lot of these patients can achieve some degree of weight loss with, with counseling, with diet and exercise. But for uh, for the morbidly obese and the super super morbidly obese, many of these people will benefit from a bariatric referral and some form of bariatric operation. And um, but as you point out correctly, the trajectory is really important. If somebody comes in with a BMI of 65, they get a bariatric uh, procedure and they get us down to you know a BMI of, of 45. That's still high, but going from a 65 or 70 down to a 45, that's a huge. Uh, weight loss, that patient's going to feel a lot better. Their physiology is going to be drastically improved, especially if they have diabetes or other comorbidities. And so um, depending on the complexity of the hernia, bowel involvement, sizing, this and that, um, these are patients after they've lost a significant amount of weight loss. Um, I, I will, and especially if they plateaued on their weight loss, despite bariatric intervention, uh, um, then these patients I will take to the operating room, still trying to do a minimally invasive approach if I can, depending on the, the size and location of the hernia, especially for primary umbilicals. And this is where, again, a minimally invasive tap or an eye pump as a backup plan uh, is a nice operation for these. Great. All right. Women of childbearing age, we talked about it. A patient comes to your clinic, She's had two uh, children before. She's hoping to have a third, and she has a umbilical hernia. She's referred to your clinic uh, for assessment uh, of this hernia. Uh, she describes no symptoms associated with pain or discomfort at the umbilicus. She just kind of doesn't like the aesthetics of it. What are your general recommendations for these patients? If asymptomatic, that makes the decision quite easy. This is watchful waiting, and, and asymptomatic and no bowel involvement. That's easy, watchful waiting, and... Uh, most patients are okay with that. They don't want an unnecessary surgery unless they're symptomatic. But if they are symptomatic um, or if there's bowel involvement, something uh, typically needs to be done depending on the severity of their symptoms. If it's if it's a mild uh, pain or discomfort, uh, then I still would uh, try for watchful waiting. But if they are symptomatic, you know, very symptomatic, certainly don't want uh, a patient suffering for, for months or years while they're awaiting pregnancy. So for these, uh, primary suture repair is a nice way to, to buy them some time to get them through their pregnancies. Uh, or perhaps if, if it's too large for primary suture repair, some form of mesh-based repair. Typically for these, I would do a bioresorbable mesh for these, uh, perhaps as an onlay. Um, uh, and, and I say onlay because I don't want to use the preperitoneal plane necessarily, and I don't want that mesh inside the abdominal cavity because these, these planes uh, might be used at a later time as well as intraperitoneal mesh uh, with, with, the, with the growing uterus in there during pregnancy. So um, again, this is a lot of counseling that is done with the patient, really determining what is how, how significant their symptoms are uh, and their future planning uh, for, for their body and their family. Wonderful. Yeah. And I, I can't stress enough the importance of counseling, something that you do great in your clinic and, and um, really talking to these patients, letting them know that regardless of what approach we take to fixing a hernia, that the recurrence burden will be higher than the standard patient if they are to get pregnant in the future and highlighting that there's a five-fold increased risk of pain uh, if a permanent mesh is used. And also, right. as we touched, as we touched base earlier, also, uh, just to finish up was with the fixation as well. I forgot to mention that is that if a mesh does have to be used, 
avoidance of uh, permanent fixation and especially a permanent transabdominal fixation, which can cause uh, significant symptoms as that abdominal wall stretches out during pregnancy. Great. All right. So emergency umbilical hernias uh, in relatively healthier patients. Okay. We're not going to be talking about the cirrhotic patient, but a patient comes in and has uh, uh, incarcerated umbilical hernia uh, you get uh, them taken to the operating room, you evaluate, and you deem that the bowel is completely viable, and it's going to be a clean case. Um, how are you going to manage the hernia defect? It's a two-centimeter hernia. You know, this is an interesting category because uh, part of it depends. Is Even though it's a clean case, is that patient optimized? Well, it's an emergent setting, so they're technically not optimized, you know, maybe they've been NPO for a day or two or several, um, you know, um, but are they actively smoking? Do they have uncontrolled diabetes? These are things that I still look at even in a, an emergent setting. If they are healthy patients, no comorbidities, and so they're quote unquote optimized, even though we didn't uh, go through the optimization sort of cycle, um, then um and, and, and there's no bowel uh, issues from a, from a contamination standpoint, then I probably would proceed with either primary suture repair if it's the small size as you, as you suggest. But if it's a larger uh, hernia, then um, I would consider a formal mesh-based repair at that time, be it uh, prepared neal or on layer or other form of, uh, of mesh-based repair, depending on the size and configuration of that hernia. And, and do you consider MIS approaches in these kinds of settings? Absolutely. Especially if there's bowel incarceration, the first thing I'll do is stick a laparoscope in there and see, can we reduce this bowel uh, laparoscopically and you know, maybe some external pressure, of course, but can, can if we can complete a case, uh, especially urgently or emergently in a minimally invasive fashion, we reduce morbidity. And so, yes, I will try to do this in a minimally invasive approach, uh, at least to reduce the bowel. And from there, uh, then you can decide whether this is a primary suture repair or a mesh space repair and whether you do it prepared neal or heck, if, you know, if you reduce the bowel laparoscopically and it's still a small, you know, one to two centimeter hernia, you can still make a little cut down and do an open primary suture repair uh, if you feel it's appropriate for that size hernia at that time. Great. And, and so that's for clean cases, obviously for clean, contaminated, contaminated or dirty uh, uh class wounds, you want to be really careful with the utilization of mesh. And you really want to think about the mesh materials you're using if you have to use it. So first line at that point, clearly it's a visceral operation. You're focused on the viscera. If you have to do a bowel resection, anastomosis, getting the patient out of a very difficult situation, a suture repair is a totally safe option. It's going to allow you options downstream at the end of the operation when the patient's recovering in the perioperative setting, you want to inform them that they're going to have a high burden for recurrence, but that was not the focus of the operation. If for any reason the hernia defect is large and you are unable to reapproximate and close it primarily, a bridged repair with resorbable mesh or biologic mesh is a safe option. I oftentimes tell the patients after such a, a procedure that we did a hernia sac reconstruction. We converted their unstable hernia sac into a more stable one. It will buy them time and we will likely need to do a more definitive repair in the future. Um, so just remember the, the primary goal of that operation is clearly not the hernia. It's what was inside the hernia. Any other thoughts on that, Dr. Arnstein? 
Yeah, you raise great points about this. The only thing I'll add is that, uh, you know, assessment of the tension when you're closing that suture, because again, most of these are going to be primary suture pair, either running or a lot of the times we do interrupted figure of H for these to, to sequentially offload tensions, we're closing it down. But if, if there's significant amount of tension with a primary closure, especially if the bowel's distended, maybe that patient was there for a bowel obstruction and, you know, plus or minus the need for a bowel resection, post-op ileus, that's going to put some distension on the abdominal wall. Uh, as you're assessing that, that tension, uh, you might just have to go for a bridge, you know, with a biological or bioresorbable. So don't feel like you have to force it with a primary suture repair. There's nothing wrong with, with a good bridge, even if it's a partial primary closure, partial bridging. And I say this because, uh, you know, in my practice, I've seen, I've, I've tried to do primary suture repairs, they dehissed and then eviscerated. Uh, and that, you know, that can lead to some complications. So, um, so if you can close primarily, great. If you need to do a, a small bridge, uh, there's nothing wrong with that to, to buy some time and get that patient through that hospitalization. Wonderful. Uh, so that actually wraps up our session on umbilical hernias in complex patients. Clearly, these are not simple uh, operations at all times. A lot of thinking goes into having a good outcome and a lot of counseling goes into making sure that your patient understands sort of the circumstances that they're dealing with. I want to thank Dr. Orenstein and Shiroz Rahman for joining us. And we want to let all the listeners know to continue to dominate the day. Thank you. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.